This month, The Spectator becomes the first magazine in history to print 10,000 issues, and we'd like to celebrate with you. Subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of commemorative Spectator gin, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week we take a look at the geopolitics of coronavirus with Professor Neil Ferguson. Also on the podcast, how will Conservatives see the NHS after this is all over? And at the very end we talk about the new class divide, the have-gardens and the have-not-gardens. First up, Professor Neil Ferguson writes about the Corona Wars in this week's cover piece, suggesting that neither America nor China will win. He joins me on the podcast now, together with Gerard Baker, editor-at-large of the Wall Street Journal. So Neil, can you tell us about the geopolitics of coronavirus? Yes, I think the way I, I see this is that Cold War II had already begun before anybody had even heard of a novel coronavirus from Wuhan. In fact, I was writing about Cold War II at the beginning of of 2019, predicting that uh, the days of what I used to call Chimerica were well and truly over and the United States and the People's Republic of China were in the early stages of a Cold War that was no longer just about trade. Now, you might have thought that the invasion of humanity by an alien species, or at least by a virus, would bring about some kind of unity of humanity, brotherhood of man style. But in fact, the the pandemic has intensified Cold War II because on the one hand, the United States has not unreasonably pointed out that it originated in China for reasons that don't reflect well on China's governance. And the Chinese have tried to, to spread fake news that in fact, the virus originated with an American military team visiting Wuhan back in October. So we've had, you know, full-blown disinformation from uh, the Chinese government. And uh, not surprisingly, that hasn't gone down well in Washington. So let's take a look at China in a little bit. First of all, Jerry, on the American side, Neil writes that it was institutions and legislation that on paper prepared the country for a pandemic that have failed in this instance and bungled the coronavirus response. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I mean, I I give a qualified agreement. Clearly, the Trump administration was, certainly in all of its public, almost all of its public statements and postures, was downplaying the threat from coronavirus. Um, And this goes, by the way, it goes beyond the Trump administration. It goes to the state level, too. I mean, one of the things people often have a difficulty understanding is just how federal a system the United States is. And for all Trump's bluster, in particular, we've seen this week about um, his sudden embrace of, you know, authoritarian central government. America is a very, is a very devolved, has a very devolved system. And what was striking was that the state governments were also themselves very underprepared. So there's no question that there was a kind of complacency and that that was unfortunate. And unfortunately, as far as we can tell, seems to have had um, again, especially in New York, very, very adverse consequences in terms of the spread of the virus and in terms of the fatalities that we've seen. I, my one reservation there is I do, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit, I'm not an epidemiologist, but like all of us, you know, I've become, uh, I've, I've learned more about epidemiology in the last month than I had ever imagined I would ever need to learn. The one qualification I would add is that if, as most people seem to believe this, we are not actually going to be able to truly 
immunize ourselves from this virus completely until we've established either uh, we, we, until we either have a vaccine or we've established herd immunity. It does seem that it is more or less inevitable, and I say that with a tremendous you know sense of regret and and, and concern that that some point over the next year or so before we get a vaccine, the virus is going to spread much more widely. The the measures that have been taken so far have done a very good job of suppressing the virus for now, but everybody assumes it's going to come back. And so I think in the longer term, the actual measures, the, the, the degree to which the United States government or the state governments were prepared may matter much less, actually, because we may just simply see that this virus is going to affect a lot of people and sadly is going to kill a lot of people. The key thing was to make sure that your health systems were prepared to deal with the surge. And I think there is some criticism can be made of the United States. But I think this idea that people are already passing judgment that the United States has failed somehow, and some same reflection I've heard of, same statement in Britain has failed, I think is a bit premature. Neil, you write that on upon first glance, it might seem that China has won the corona wars. I mean, if its official figures are to be believed, it's flattened the curve, it's the first, one of the first countries out. But also that you're not convinced that it actually will be a victory for China in this case. That's right. The Chinese have not only flattened the curve according to their official statistics on case numbers and fatalities, they've also bent the narrative. They've tried to argue that, well, yes, it may have originated in China, if you really insist on that. But we've actually uh, figured out much quicker than useless Western democracies how to deal with this disease. And now we're going to make our know-how and uh, and indeed our medical equipment available to the rest of the world. And we'll miraculously convert ourselves from the scourge to the saviours of nations. I think that is is a kind of classic bit of Cold War style uh, propaganda that the Chinese government's been engaged in. And some people are lapping it up. Five-star movement in, in Italy, the Hungarian government of Viktor Orban. Uh, there are plenty of people willing to shill for Beijing in in Europe. But But I don't know that this is entirely convincing. First of all, there are ongoing and serious doubts about the transparency of the Chinese government with respect to statistics. I'm almost sure it will turn out that substantially more people died of COVID-19 than the Chinese have let on. And we're nowhere near really having an idea of what excess mortality was like in in China in the first quarter of this year. Secondly, I think a lot of people around the world are listening with the greatest scepticism to Chinese propaganda. So the central argument of of this week's cover story is it's not so much that the United States has screwed up and China has uh, snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Actually, both the superpowers have messed up this pandemic in their own distinctive ways. And, And so has the European Union, another large geopolitical entity that actually performed really dismally in this crisis. The real winners, in terms of their ability to deal with the pandemic, have been relatively small, nimble countries like Israel and Taiwan, and one might also mention Singapore and South Korea, even Iceland. So small is beautiful in a pandemic because if you are relatively small and you do understand the science of epidemiology, you can do the kind of large-scale testing that's really indispensable to a nuanced and effective response, and you can deploy technology for contact tracing. This is what the Taiwanese absolutely nailed. 
On that point about narrative control, Jerry, the Trump administration has also tried to control the narrative, you know, calling it the Wuhan virus, Wuhan flu, China virus, and really hammering in the origins of the virus. Do you see that sort of narrative being effective on the American electorate and how much of it is electioneering and how much of it is permanent cyanoscepticism? It's it's obviously been ineffective in terms of its ability to shape the conversation. I mean, people, there was a brief period where Trump himself and Trump supporters and people of a like mind in the media were calling it the Wuhan virus or China virus or whatever. That quickly passed and people do call it coronavirus or COVID-19 or whatever right now. But I do think that Trump has done quite an effective job of deflecting some of the criticism. I mean, essentially, deflecting, deflecting a lot of the criticism against him for his mishandling of the response to the virus by essentially saying this is a, this is a China problem. Indeed, I, I think I think to some extent this will be one of the framing arguments of, of the presidential election. We're in you know we're only seven months less than seven months away now from from election day, and it will be the criticism. You know, the, the Democrats, much of the media, are making the case that Trump failed the country, and Trump is saying no, no, no. You know, first of all, you know. I, did my famous travel ban on China back at the end of January. But much more importantly, let's put blame where it's due, which is China. And of course, in the way of these things, both both arguments have merit. There is absolutely no question that the primary responsibility for this, I think most people would agree with that, lies with China. And, you know, perhaps we've seen this a debate this week about the World Health Organization and to what extent the World Health Organization enabled China's dissembling uh, over, over the issue. But I think most people would agree that the, since the virus originated in China and was allowed to spread in China because of China's initial refusal to acknowledge it and then attempts to, sh- to shut down any discussion about it and sh- sh- shut down any political. So people would agree with that. At the same time, most people would agree that the that the administration has not handled it well either. I think you'll find, as ever in this country, this country is a high, you know, highly partisan political environment. I think you find you are seeing already, and it's reflected in the polls, those people who are inclined to support Trump saying this is all China's fault, and Trump's critics saying no, 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 Trump lied, Americans died, it's all it's all Trump's fault. And Neil, what do you make of President Trump's decision to stop funding the World Health Organization? You've written extensively about the decline of American empire in a sort of hypothetical sense. Do you think that this is a sort of thing stepping back from the global stage that some people have said this is the beginning of the end? Well, I think the World Health Organization's behaved disgracefully and uh, has been almost an accessory to disaster in the way that it it essentially uh, took the Chinese line uh, in the crucial weeks of uh, of January. Uh, so I don't blame President Trump for proposing to end U.S. contributions to the WHO. But uh, let let's step back a bit and make two points. The first is that I don't just write hypothetically about American empire in my book Colossus, which was published back in two thousand four. I made the argument that uh, for all intents and purposes, the United States is an empire. And just because Americans say that they're not an empire doesn't mean that we should necessarily believe that. Back in the days of George W. Bush, the United States was doing things that empires have done since classical antiquity, like invading Mesopotamia. So I I don't really think there's anything hypothetical about American uh, empire. I've just said ever since that book that this was an empire in in decline and and I think 
this is very much part of that process. The United States of the 1950s coped a lot better with the global pandemic, the 1957-58 influenza, than the United States of 2020 has coped with this pandemic. And it's not just about Trump. I know the media like to make it all about Trump because he's such good copy. But the truth is, this was a massive failure of the administrative state, of the various agencies in the United States, whose job it is to prepare for a pandemic. Congress, as I point out in the piece, has passed three pieces of legislation on this point. There's been a bipartisan commission dedicated to biodefense. There's a whole part of the Department of Health and Human Services that's supposed to be focused on precisely this threat. And uh, they all failed. I just make one point, though, going back to, to Jerry's observation that Trump's handled this well. I'm kind of doubtful about that, actually, Jerry. As you said, it's seven months until election day, seven months that are going to be characterised by the biggest economic slowdown since the Great Depression. The the numbers that we're seeing are just absolutely eye-watering. And it's very difficult, uh, historically, for incumbents to get re-elected. I do think that over time, the mood of the American public is going to become more and more depressed even if they are receiving stimulus checks today, they're looking forward to a pretty miserable summer without baseball, without beach parties. Social distancing, even if we wind down the economic lockdowns, is going to be a pretty miserable experience. Uh, And I think that uh, by the time we get to Labour Day and then start looking forward in earnest to the election, people will want what they wanted after the 1918-19 influenza pandemic, a return to normalcy. That was the slogan Warren Harding, the Republican candidate, ran on in 1920, and he won by a massive landslide. Joe Biden's campaign's already all about normalcy. And my view is that all Biden really has to do is stay alive and avoid catching COVID-19 to win. I, yeah, I disagree. I do disagree. I, I think that, look, of course, historically speaking, an unemployment rate of 20% would doom an incumbent. And But actually, they may well be able to make a case that, look, we took the measures, we did what we did. We actually ended up with a lower fatality rate per head of population than most of the major developed countries in the world. And, you know, I saved you. And I think that will actually be quite a powerful message. And it could trump forgive the inevitable pun, the absolute economic catastrophe that we are um, we are certainly going to be living through in the next few months. And just a final question to both of you to round off. Neil, you mentioned that before this happened, we were almost heading into Cold War II. What happens when this is over to US-China relations? Does China successfully convince the world that it's the saviour of coronavirus or is this a turning point in its rising tide? Well, I don't think it's going to be over. That That's the critical thing. If one looks at the history of pandemics, they, they're not just one and done. Uh, they tend to come in waves. And I think this particular virus uh, will probably retreat I say probably, we're not certain, but probably retreat in the summer months in the northern hemisphere as temperatures rise, only to make a comeback in the in the autumn. And of course, until there's a vaccine and or uh, so-called herd immunity, it'll just keep coming back every time social distancing diminishes. And so I think it's a mistake 
to think of it as about to be over. I think it's going to become endemic. As to what the geopolitical fallout will be, the unpredictable thing is what happens domestically in China. There's no way Xi Jinping uh, is going to be able to meet his uh, cherished target of uh, five plus percent growth this year. It'll be a lot less than that, uh, no matter how hard they cook the books and, and try to juice the machine. And I don't think it's inconceivable that there will be some political consequences for Xi, who, who's already antagonised significant parts of the Chinese elite with his more aggressively uh, expansionist policy, with his uh, clash over trade with the United States. His position's not completely invulnerable. But, but I think as we grow accustomed to, to living with COVID-19, as we live with other endemic diseases... The big question will be which of the, the superpowers can learn from its mistakes the fastest. And my sense is that it won't be China and it won't be the European Union. It will be the United States that is given such a painful lesson from COVID-19 that it's forced to address some of the central problems of its politics. And I mentioned two in the piece. The problem that we've confused politics with showbiz which, of course, is what gave us Donald Trump, and the problem that the administrative states become completely dysfunctional, which is, of course, another thing that gave us Donald Trump. I think the US is finally going to confront these, these problems and, and address them. And it's, as Jerry said, relatively decentralised system. It's very open, no-holds-barred democracy is ultimately more likely to produce radical change and reform than the political systems of, of Europe, uh, much less China. I mean, the central operating assumption that I have in terms of understanding what will happen to international relations or indeed politics of any sort in the next three to five years or so is informed by my strong belief that, as I said earlier, we, we are headed in for a really, really deep and nasty period for the global economy. And, and frankly, it will be, a, I mean, I think it will be who cares about the nomenclature of these things, but it will be a depression in the sense that it will be much, much worse than anything we've seen since the 1930s. I mean, the businesses are going to be very, very reluctant to hire in great numbers again until productivity increases significantly, and that will be some time away. You're going to see a real sharp reduction in global trade as global supply chains are pulled back. You're going to see a massive, you've already seen a massive explosion of debt. Over time, that is relatively quickly, that's going to have to be, that's going to constrain the economy because the government's going to have to raise taxes or reduce spending quite significantly over the next few years. Italy, places, many countries in Europe are going to be even worse. So again, I don't want to sound suicidal here, but I think we are headed for a really weak period of growth. And I think that, as it did in the 1930s, is going to define international relations. I think it will, we've seen the rise of populism in the last 10 years in a period of relatively weak economic growth. And if we have something much worse, then I suspect the politics in, politics in this country, in Europe, and conceivably even in Asia too, uh, are going to be dramatically affected by that. I don't pretend to know at this point what those implications will be, but I do think the economic fallout from this will be so severe as to fundamentally fundamentally in a way that we that, that even you know Trump and Brexit and strains within the European Union and the, that we've seen in the last 10 years they're going to pale I think into insignificance in the in terms of what we will see in the next 5 years or so on that cheerful note Jerry and Neil thanks very much next 
Before coronavirus hit, Boris Johnson was already making the NHS one of his policy priorities. But just how will this crisis change the way that the Conservatives see healthcare in this country? Katie Ball speaks to James Forsyth and Jeremy Hunt, former Health Secretary and Chair of the Health Select Committee. James, in your politics column in this week's Spectator, you say politics is full of events that are meant to change everything, but actually do very little. However, coronavirus is going to have a lasting impact on the Tory party. In what ways do you think the Tory party is already changing or at least working out its its new positioning? So I think the government's response to coronavirus has catalyzed a bunch of changes that were already underway in the Tory party. Changes that are being created by, you know, the Brexit referendum, the Tories becoming a leave party, and then those red wall seats that they won in 2019. So I think you're going to see the Tory party become a more communitarian party. I think you're going to see the Tory party try and associate itself even more with the NHS. You know, it's worth remembering that back in 2006, David Cameron said that you could sum up his priorities in three letters, NHS. And I think that was given a kind of emotional resonance by his own family's dependence on the health service. And I think that Boris Johnson, having gone through what he has gone through, the kind of the classic Labour charge that Tories don't care about the health service, it's not something that they use, that clearly doesn't apply to him. And if you look at the way he talked about the NHS in that video he released when he came out of hospital, you're clearly going to see the Tory party trying to kind of position themselves as the NHS, great champions of the NHS. I think the other thing that's going to come out of this is they are that they are going to have to deal with social care. You know, no one in the Tory party has wanted to touch this issue since it cost Theresa May her majority in 2017, but they're going to have to deal with that. I also think that, you know, that Tory support for, for big increases in the minimum wage, I think that is going to carry on after this crisis. I think if you look at how indispensable various workers, lots of them on the minimum wage in both the private and public sectors have been during this crisis, I think that is going to continue. I and mean, I think mean, the final change is, I think that in the same way that World War II left policymakers with a desire for kind of food security, I think you're going to have a desire after this crisis for kind of medical security. That is going to complicate Tory attitudes towards free trade. Jeremy, you clearly have a lot of first-hand experience when it comes to perceptions of the Conservative Party and the NHS. Do you think this is a sea change moment in how the Conservative Party is going to be perceived when it comes to the health service? Well, I agree with James's analysis uh, very much. And I think it goes back even further because of this uh, enforced isolation that we're going through, I'm, I'm just completing the third volume of Charles Moore's biography of Margaret Thatcher, which is an incredible thing to do. And you kind of need something like this to anchor you at home before you can do that. And you realise that um, our relationship with the NHS has been very complex since the time of Thatcher. She had no plan to privatise the NHS, far from it. But because privatisation was so successful in other parts of her agenda, it was always a charge thrown at her by her political opponents. And there was always this sort of suspicion that if the Tories could, they might just try to get rid of the NHS. And that's never been the case. You had David Cameron, as James said rightly, because of Ivan, had a very emotional link to the NHS. And in fact, he had higher poll ratings than Gordon Brown in terms of whether he was trusted to look after the NHS in the 2010 election. But the love was never really consummated because of the Health and Social Care Act in 2012, which I think really burnt David Cameron's fingers. 
And when I became Health Secretary at the end of 2012, that act had just become law. And there was really um, a feeling that they just wanted things to calm down with the NHS. And they were really shocked at having given this big commitment not to cut the NHS budget, that this um, Health and Social Care Act had been so devastating for the government. And then I think um, we went through that period of austerity. It was incredibly challenging being responsible for the health service in that period. And Theresa May was persuaded by me and Simon Stevens that the NHS needed a a once in a lifetime boost, that £20 billion boost in June 2018. But she never really got enormous credit for it because uh, there was just so much pressure in the health service. I think now what's happened is because the NHS has saved Boris Johnson's life, that people will believe the Conservatives when they say that we care about the NHS. I think one of the big differences is the way Margaret Thatcher talked about the health service. She used to kind of almost boast about having private medical insurance, saying, you know, that was a kind of, that was a good thing, right? And I think that did contribute to an idea that the Tory party almost regarded the NHS as a service for other people. And I think one of the big changes about this is by the fact that Boris Johnson ended up in an NHS intensive care unit, that has demonstrated that he is as dependent on the NHS as anybody else. I think that that is a shift. When you go before Thatcher, the big narrative that we need to challenge as Conservatives is this idea that the NHS was Labour's baby because it was under a Labour government, it was set up in law, but actually the word National Health Service was first uttered by a Conservative health minister, Sir Henry Willink, in 1944 in the wartime coalition government. And if Churchill had won the election in '45, he would have set up a National Health Service. And so I think that's the other challenge we have, that it's, it's part of Labour's creation myth that they are the party of the NHS, when actually, as, as you said, James, quite rightly, the Second World War changed people's mentality. There was a feeling that for health, food and housing, no one should go without. And um, that was as much a Conservative ideal as a Labour one. And Jeremy, on changes and changes in public mood, I wondered, what about the running of the NHS? Because one of the factors so far in the government's approach, the way they have dealt with the coronavirus response, is there's been lots of questions about whether, for example, PPE has reached people when they need it. And there seems to be a little bit of a tussle between decisions by ministers and decisions by health trusts. One of the things James mentions in his column is the idea that actually the the Lansley reforms are going to be further phased out and you could see perhaps more of a, a centralised system or, or less NHS independence. Do you think that could be the direction we're heading in? I think it was already the direction we were heading in. The Lansley reforms were basically the culmination of a process of reform that was started by Ken Clark when he set up the internal market given uh, rocket boosters by Alan Milburn when he allowed private companies in to compete for NHS business and concluded really by Andrew Lansley in, in his act. But the trouble was with that approach, it was really based on a view that the biggest thing the NHS was doing was discrete operations, changing someone's hip, changing someone's knee. Now, it's, it's relatively easy to contract Booperin to do a, a knee operation uh, or spire to do a, a hip operation. But 
the bulk of what the NHS does now is much more complicated work for older people who have multiple long-term conditions, lots of things wrong with them. They're going to go to hospital six, seven, eight times a year. And for those people, you need an integrated system with a single electronic health record. And so what's really been happening since 2012 is no government has actually wanted to put forward major legislation to change the structures of the NHS because of the toxicity of, of having what, you know, what's called top-down reorganisations. But that is now what the NHS wants. They want to be able to join up their services. Uh, they want to be able to join up primary care, hospital care, community care and social care. And I think what will happen in the next year, was, I think it was planned anyway before coronavirus, is that we will see an NHS bill. But the, the poison will be drained from it because this will be a bill that the NHS is asking for, not a, a bill that the government is imposing on the NHS. Now, accompanying any changes to the NHS is a question that has been asked for many times many times in Westminster, but is yet to be thoroughly answered in a way that at least the public will go for, and that's on social care. James, there's clearly a lot of attention at the moment on care homes, the fact that coronavirus seems to not be being controlled in a sufficient manner, lack of PPE. Do you think that this crisis is going to lead to a social care solution finally being offered? It is something Boris Johnson promised to do pre-coronavirus, but was rather lacking in that Tory manifesto. I, I think it's going to have to be done because I think no Tory has wanted to touch the fundamentals of this question since, since the issue cost Theresa May her majority in 2017. But I think what is being exposed about how social care is even before this crisis hit, you know, this crisis has shone a spotlight on social care, means that there is going to have to be an answer to it. People are going to have to have, there is going to have to be a kind of, how do you enable people to have more dignity in, in this period of their lives? And, you know, you talk to people in government and they're like, look, you know, if we don't act on social care after this crisis, we, we never will. So I think there will have to be some action on social care. I think the big question is, how do you do it? What is the right model? And I think, you know, you, you are going to get into this whole question of whether do you essentially create a second NHS for social care, a kind of national care service? Or do you opt for more like an insurance model building on the success of kind of auto enrolment in, in private pensions, for example? But I think there is going to have to be something done on that, because I think one of the things about this is that you know after world war one there was a kind of a land fit for heroes and all this i mean at the end of this crisis people are going to ask you know what is the new settlement for key workers what is the new settlement for the elderly and i mean there will have to be an answer on social care in there jeremy what do you think the answer should be or perhaps have as part of it well i think there are two quite distinct issues on social care so the first is something that's big concern to many middle-class voters, and that is the unfairness of the fact that if you have cancer, the state pays for all your costs, uh, your medical costs, your treatment costs, uh, your care costs. But if you have dementia, you end up picking a large part of that tab yourself, at least until you're very, very ill and your resources have, have run right down. And lots of people end up losing their houses as well. So that is something that is a, a touchstone for particularly conservative voters who feel that they've 
worked hard all their lives, saved up an inheritance they want to pass on to their children and then they're not able to do so. That's one set of issues. But actually, I think the interesting thing about the coronavirus crisis is it, it's actually focused attention on another set of issues, which is the fact that the health and social care systems are totally interlinked. And it's not possible, for example, to solve the problem of protective equipment by making sure hospitals get all the protective equipment they need if care homes don't get it as well, because they are equally part of effectively the same system. And so I think one of the conclusions that we will come to is that, and this is certainly the conclusion I came to as health secretary, is the reason that we're having winter crises year after year is because the social care system is not taking up the slack in terms of looking after older people in their own homes in the way that it did previously. And uh, what happens now is because of the, the period of austerity that we had, the most vulnerable people uh, who don't have resources of their own are looked after by the state in care homes. But for the NHS, the real issue is actually the next level up, which is people who are just well enough to live in their own homes, but are very vulnerable. They might fall down the stairs, they might not be eating properly. And those people, if something goes wrong, if you don't have a social care system, they just end up in A&E. But even worse, they tend not to leave A&E. About 80% of the over 80s who go to A&E over wintertime will end up being admitted to hospital. And so what actually happens if you don't look after people in the social care system is they end up in hospitals, which are much more expensive and actually much less good for people on a personal level in terms of their recovery chances. So if we want to go into the next election having broken the cycle of annual winter crises, we have to fix the social care system. James, this is clearly a very big drive, but the things we discussed are going to cost. And if you look at the economic fallout from the lockdown so far, it's looking rather difficult for Boris Johnson to lead a government that A, fulfills all his election promises in terms of the level-up agenda, infrastructure, the new issues he has to deal with, and, as we expect, presumably extra funding to the NHS in the coming years. So is the economic balance in terms of where the Tory party is going to look or, or its general approach to spending going to have to change? So I think the most interesting thing is that the sense in government is but they don't want to go back to the status quo ante. They don't want to try and just rebuild what was there before. Uh, and obviously, it's at a very early stage. But I think their thinking at the moment is you want to combine levelling up Brexit and net zero in your kind of post-coronavirus reconstruction job on the economy. And so it's not as simple as we're going for austerity to try and get the books back in order. I mean, I, I was talking to someone very close to Boris Johnson and we were talking about whether the, the you know some of the infrastructure projects that the government is so keen on would have to go. And he said, well, there's no way Boris is going to give those up because he thinks that those are key to driving economic growth and only economic growth can kind of begin to get you out of a financial hole that you're in. So I think what you're going to try and see is actually a, a kind of an even more radical government than we would have expected in December 2019, because you're going to try and you're going to see them try and kind of in, in kind of almost kind of one pot cooking, combine Brexit, levelling up, and net zero into this attempt to kind of refashion the economy 
after coronavirus. That was Katie Balls, James Forsyth and Jeremy Hunt. And last, Melanie McDonnell writes in this week's issue about how the lockdown has made her into a song culotte. She joins me down the line now, together with Freddie Gray, our deputy editor. Melanie, you write that when it comes to the lockdown, we're not all in this together. Can you tell us how we're not? Well, the experience of it is simply radically different for um, people who've got access to land and to space and you might say air and light, and those um, in an urban environment who are cooped up without access to a garden, and in my case without access even to a flipping window box. There is a kind of pecky order here between um, those without any um, access to the outside apart from their lift or stairs, and those who've got a balcony, those who've got a window box, those who've got an allotment, I've got one of those, those who've got green space outside, and those who've got uh, a house in the country where they can retire to, which is, in my estimation, every single one of the governing classes that I know of, every single member of the elite that I am acquainted with. (laughs) Um, And that includes media as well as politicians. And um, those who, frankly, have got access to a house in the country at all times and who go there at every opportunity, whether there's um, a pandemic or not. Freddie, you said before we came on air that you felt a bit guilty reading Melanie's piece. Can you tell us about your lockdown, why you feel guilty? Well, I feel guilty because uh, we have escaped to the Isle of Wight. We're not lucky enough to have our own second home, but my mother-in-law has a place down here on the Isle of Wight, which has, it's a flat, but it has a garden and it's close to the beach and it's wonderful. And we always love coming here. And then my mother-in-law is uh, stuck in Putney, but we quite early on decided that we would go down to the Isle of Wight. And so we've been here for a few weeks now. And um, I realise it's an awful time for a lot of people, but it's actually been really blissful for us. So I'm one of these awful smug people enjoying a second home, if not our second home. Journalists can't afford second homes, as as we all know. Uh, (laughs) How, How do you spend your days, Freddie? Well, I'd be working very hard, Cindy, as you know. Uh, and, uh, Describe it, Freddie. I've, I've turned um, my my mother-in-law's bed. I hope she doesn't hear this. My mother-in-law's bedroom has become my temporary office, and um, I have a swim in the sea every day, which is very nice. It was very cold to begin with, but it's got gradually warmer. It's quite almost balmy now, so it's really quite fun. I mean, there is. There's been a lot of talk on the island about the sort of locals resenting the DFLs, as they call them, the down from Londoners coming and bringing the plague to the island. <laughs> uh, but so far, touch wood, the infection rates don't seem to have skyrocketed on the island. There were some worries a couple of weeks ago, but it seems to be OK at the moment. But uh, apart from a few perhaps uh, aggressive looks in the village uh, when I go out for my uh, mandatory daily exercise, I have not encountered much hostility. Do they know that you're a DFL? No, we're working on our Isle of Wight accent to try and blend in. <laughs> Good idea. Melanie, you say that this um, divide has even turned you into your sans culotte when it comes to class and land. Yes, it does um, make you acutely aware of all the realities um, that's, um, that, 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 that um, are evident at the best of times, but this makes it um, practical, immediate and personal. So um, I've um, acquainted with um, people with um, estates in the country, with um, country homes, whose natural uh, way of working is to spend the week in town and the weekend in the country in their other home. It's not a, even a weekend home, it's their other home. And um, it does um, bring home to me that this um, division of land 
not even gardens, but uh, but land, uh, is entirely class and money-based. And it's something that normally I'm perfectly prepared to live with. But when it occurs to me that the reason that they're having a mandatory vacation in the country, um, literally a month in the country, and um, I'm at the top of um, a mansion block, it is squarely to do with um, the, with with class and with um, with income. And these um, eternal verities and um, the, the remarkable thing is that they are still uh, very much with us. Um, the, the, you can live with those things when you yourself can get out and about but when you've got um, time to brood about these things because you don't have access to land space, a kitchen garden a fruit cage and um, the kind of country air, then um, your sense of grievance does tend to mount. I'm hoping to snap out of it when the um, pandemic is over and obviously I'm very glad for friends like Freddie who um, are having a lovely time. I try to rejoice in their happiness and in their um, glowing health and in their access to the open air and the sea and personally I I swim in the open sea throughout the year, not just in the spring, which is just for pansies, frankly. Um, so um, the, <laughs> I'm very, very happy yeah, yeah. for him. So Melanie, how have you been getting your fill of the outdoors and fresh air? And do you have any tips for other people, I mean, such as myself, stuck in high rises? Well, first of all, you've got to break the government guidelines about only spending... <laughs> Um, an hour getting out of doors. Um, I can get to the Thames if I make the trip an hour and a half rather than an hour and that gets me down as far as um, the the riverbank and you can see the changing seasons, you can see the trees, Um, you can get um, even a bit of forage again because I discovered a bit of wild garlic that nobody else has found which retails for £2 a packet in the Notting Hill Farmers Market and um, in another direction I've got access to um, a nice park so the great thing is to give yourself a bit more leeway and if you happen to be one of those fortunate few who's got an allotment then you're you're really there but there's another um, aspect to all this which is that the working from home thing is fabulous for people like Freddie and me because um, we've got essentially best desk and computer based jobs though um, in my case uh, the reason I'm on furlough for my normal work is that um, I review exhibitions and with the best will in the world you can't do virtual exhibitions um, Mm. for more than about um, three pieces uh, eventually and the boredom sets in, you, you need to have something to review. But um, for dustmen and for delivery people and for uh, shop workers and for the people in Tesco's and for the Ocado um, sort of lorry drivers, you simply can't uh, remote work. You've got to have manual work, you've got to have physical work, you've got to have face-to-face encounters with people with the best will in the world. You can't um, keep your distance entirely. And um, th- th- there is that divide between the people with the kind of work that can be done from home and the people who flipping well can't do it from home. Freddie, I mean, there have been some people who have enjoyed their countryside lockdown so much that they say that they don't want to come back to London, given that they can work from home. Do you think you'll you'll ever come back to London? Of course I'll come back to London. I think uh, people who say that perhaps London's better off uh, without them. <laughs> but um, I, I agree with a lot of what Melanie says. But I think that just, you know, life is terribly unfair. And the problem with the lockdown is it makes it unbearably unfair. And I think that's why the real cruelty here is the lockdown, not necessarily our living arrangements. I mean, there is always injustice in life, he says. (laughs) Smugly (laughs) from his mother-in-law's bedroom. Like I say, I'm very happy for you. (laughs) Only only three more weeks of wild swimming to go. (laughs) Thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed, as well as Alison Pearson's diary... Colin Freeman on the implications of coronavirus for drug dealers 
as well as an interview with Bill Bryson by Leif Arbuthnot. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Music